what you see is in the walking group, improvements in memory, improvements in attention, an increase in the volume of the hippocampal formation, uh, an increase in the amount of this amazing substance BDNF in the blood. And uh, the 72-year-olds start to perform on psychological tests at the same level as 68-year-olds do. So in, in a very important sense, you've reversed the functional aging of the brain. Hi, my name is Rongan Chasji, GP, television presenter and author of the best-selling books The Stress Solution and The Four Pillar Plan. I believe that all of us have the ability to feel better than we currently do, but getting healthy has become far too complicated. With this podcast, I aim to simplify it. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most interesting and exciting people both within as well as outside the health space to hopefully inspire you as well as empower you with simple tips that you can put into practice immediately to transform the way that you feel. I believe that when we are healthier, we are happier because when we feel better, we live more. Hello and welcome back to episode 84 of my Feel Better Live More podcast. My name is Rongan Chatterjee and I am your host. Now, before we jump into today's conversation, I just wanted to share something with you that has been really exciting for me to hear. As you may know, I recently set up my own private Facebook community so that listeners of this podcast could have a safe and supportive space to connect, talk about the podcasts, and help inspire each other to make better choices in their everyday lives. Now, there are over 5,000 active members in the group, and some of them have been arranging local meetups. These are a bit like book clubs, but instead people are having feel better, live more podcast clubs. People have decided to meet up in person to discuss each week's episode and share insights, learnings, takeaways, and so much more. This is really, really exciting that many of you have decided to use this digital and online podcast as a way of making offline connections. If you are interested in getting involved, do head over to that Facebook group. It's called Dr. Chatterjee Four Pillar Community Tribe. And you can see what is going on in your area. And if no one is meeting up, you can start a weekly podcast meetup in person yourself. Now, today's episode is all about walking. And it's entitled, Why Walking is the Superpower You Didn't Know You Had. When was the last time you gave any real thought to walking? It's so easy, isn't it, to just put one foot in front of the other? Yet this unique, underrated activity sets us apart from other species and brings incredible advantages if we do it enough. My guest on this week's show is the neuroscientist Shane O'Mara, a professor of experimental brain research at Trinity College Dublin. After reading his remarkable new book, In Praise of Walking, The New Science of How We Walk and Why It's Good for Us, I couldn't wait to talk to him about the topics it raises. Shane has always been a keen walker and aims to clock 15 to 17,000 steps every single day on his pedometer. But as we discuss, the positive effects of walking go way beyond the fitness benefits that we all know about. Walking helps our hearts, our lungs, our muscles, our posture, yet modern sedentary lives mean we're doing far less of it than nature intended. Walking can increase creativity and problem solving, lift our mood and protect us from depression. And Shane reveals how it helps learning, memory and cognition, 
and how it can slow and even reverse the functional aging of the brain. All this science, he hopes, will help convince town planners and public health officials that we must redesign our environments with pedestrians in mind. This is such an enlightening conversation and I know you will gain some fascinating new perspectives on how you could and why you should fit more walking into your life. In fact, why not head out for a stroll as you listen to this conversation? Now, before we get started, as always, I do need to give a quick shout out to some of the sponsors of today's show who are essential in order for me to put out weekly episodes like this one. Vivo Barefoot Shoes, the minimalist footwear company, continue to support my podcast. I have been a huge fan of Vivo Barefoot Shoes for many years now, and I've experienced a lot of benefits since wearing them. Basically, I wear Vivo Barefoot Shoes anytime that I'm not actually barefoot. So for work, for exercising, but also for walking. And I think this episode in particular is very relevant if you are thinking about giving Vivo Barefoot Shoes a try. Walking in their shoes is one of the best ways to start transitioning to minimalist shoes. It can really help you to start connecting with your feet and the ground. Vivo Barefoot recently made a short documentary shedding light on why modern day shoes and particularly trainers are, as they say, a shoe-shaped public health scandal. You can actually watch that short documentary, it's only about five minutes long or so, at www.shoespiracy.tv. After watching it, I honestly think it will challenge you to think differently about your shoes and the negative effects your footwear may be having on your feet, the way you move and ultimately your overall health. For listeners of my show, Vivo Barefoot have come up with a great deal. They are offering 20% off to all customers in the UK, USA, Australia, and selected EU countries. If you have thought about giving them a go, this is a great incentive to start. Importantly, they offer a 100-day free trial for new customers. So if you're not happy, you can simply send them back for a full refund. If you have been sitting on the fence about trying minimalist shoes, please do consider taking advantage of this offer. You get your 20% off Vivo Barefoot shoes by going to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more. That's vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more. Now, on to today's conversation. So Shane, welcome to the Feel Better Live More podcast. Uh, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Now, Shane, ever since a friend of mine sent me the Guardian article about your book, I have been really looking forward to trying to get hold of you and actually locking you down for a podcast. And I'm really intrigued as why does a neuroscientist feel that it's important to write an entire book on the subjects of walking? So uh, walking is this astonishing capacity that all humans have. Uh, it's kind of like the superpower that we have that we've overlooked. And uh, the science of walking has come together in a really beautiful way over the past 10 or 15 years. And uh, when my agent said to me, I should write a book on walking, I felt like I'd been slapped in the face because, of course, I should have written a book on walking. I knew the literature and uh, uh, it's something I'm passionate about and I wanted to tell the story of it. It's that yeah. simple. Amazing. I guess... A lot of the best books are the ones with the simplest ideas, right? Yeah. And they often come from a passion as well. And so you're hinting there that you've always loved to walk. Is walking something you've always done? If you look back in your life, can you can you think back to, you know, as an adolescent, as a kid, has there always been something about walking that's appealed to you? If, funny enough, yes. And uh, 
but the realization I should write about it never did. So it's funny that when something is that close to you, that uh, sometimes yeah. it takes somebody else to, to to point it out to you. I remember, you know, when I was very young, we lived in the countryside, and I used to love. Uh, tramping across the fields and disappearing for hours at a time and scaring my poor mother and then eventually returning. Um, yeah. So even then, I, I used to love walking. And this morning, before you got here today, we're, we're recording this around lunchtime. It's just gone 12 o'clock. Have you been walking this morning? Is it something you do to prepare for interviews or anything like I, that? I've done about 7,000 steps this morning uh, already. Wow. And uh, on a, a day that I'm happy with my walking, I typically have done fifteen to 17,000 uh, steps. And I don't think that's extraordinary. I think this is something we should all be doing. Wow. I mean, that's incredible because I think a lot of people listening to this will be familiar with the, the adage about walking 10,000 steps a day. And I've, I've written about this before saying I'm not entirely sure that there's you know, brilliant research saying that it should be 10,000 steps a day. But I think for many, it's a pretty good barometer. Um, so w I think we should go into that in terms of, you know, are human beings walking enough in the 21st century? I guess we're recording this in London, so I'm particularly talking about us urbanites who, I guess, are always trying to become and get more physical activity into our lives. Are we walking enough? Yeah, so I don't think we are. I think evolution has constructed us to walk lots from very early in life, from, you know, 16 or 17 months of age, uh, all the way through to really late in life, so 80s, 90s. And um, we can do that very, very well for long distances, long periods of time. But we've built an environment that acts against us. So we, you, humans have two major things we must do. We must source energy. Uh, so, And we've solved that problem in the modern world. We can get food very, very easily from all sorts of places. But the other side of that, the, the exercise, the movement that we've engaged in to get food we don't need to do anymore. Uh, so we've designed a world, like look at the world we're sitting in here, uh, yeah. where we should be upstanding, mooching about, and we don't do that. Um, now, the 10,000 steps is, is a really, I think is a good guideline. It's not well-founded in terms of good bodies of data, but it, it's worth thinking about what we know about what people actually do. So uh, we know from smartphone data that the a country that walks the most on average per day is the Japanese. They typically walk about 5,000 steps a day each. Uh, the country that walks the least is Saudi Arabia. They walk around about 3,000 steps a day. The UK is, and the US are in there at about 4,000 steps a day on average. Wow. Um, we're capable of very, very much more. So a child or an infant learning to uh, to walk uh, does enormous amounts of walking. Uh, when you actually measure what they do, the average kid walks about 2,003 steps, uh, 2,300 steps per hour and falls on average back on their butt about 17 times per hour. Wow. Um, so kids are made for this. We adults are made for it, but we've engineered a society that uh, uh, militates against it. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's that's very similar to the problems we've got with our foods. Um, you know, our food supply, our food environments. We're very much, you know, as humans, we, you know, we've always had to go out and find our food. You know, it's always been pretty scarce. And so we've got to use activities to go and get that food. What food was available to us would be dictated by geography and climate. Whereas now we're living in a world where actually the food environment is pretty similar, like 12 months a year, whether it's summer or it's winter. Uh, we have readily available hyper and uh, ultra processed foods, which are having a consequent impact on our health, not just obesity. So I guess there's a very similar theme, isn't there? The environment in which we are living is working against us. Yeah, and I, I think you see the, 
the, the problem is the default is easy. We can blame the individual. Uh, and it's it's very easy not to see the system around you. So where does your food come from? How is it sourced? How is it treated? Well, actually, we treat this as a as a, as a, a problem of, of calories and money. We don't we don't treat it in, in, in a much greater and wider sense. And, and movement is the same issue. In my own building, for example, I always use this example. To get to the stairs, I have to go through three fire doors, whereas to use the lift, the lift is just in front of me. Yeah. So the default that we provide ourselves is one of ease, uh, when actually we can engineer things so that we get a bit more movement in. And if we can do that during the course of the day, every day, it will be pay us uh, benefits in all sorts of ways that we aren't conscious of, but we will be glad of. Yeah. yeah. You know, on the way here, I got the tube from Euston to Pimlico. And when I was coming out at Pimlico uh, Underground Station, there were two sets of stairs on both sides. And there was, sorry, there was two escalators on both sides. And in the middle was a set of stairs. And I was coming out, so I was having to go up. And I have made it a rule where possible to never outsource my physical activity to a device or a machine or to an electronic uh, appliance wherever I can. I'm not perfect, but I did think as I was going there, I thought, okay, you know what? It is quite far up, but I'm going to take the stairs. What was interesting is that I observed myself on the stairs. I observed who was around me. And at the top, I had to look back. And I was the only person, certainly in the time that I was there, who took the stairs. Now, I'm not saying that in terms of putting blame on anybody else who was not doing it. I appreciate many people struggle to walk up that much. Maybe the air's not fantastic in the underground. People are tired, they're carrying bags. I totally get that. But I guess that is very much reflective of what you're saying, isn't it? It's it's easier for us to take those escalators than it is for us to take the yeah. stairs. Yeah, and the defaults are the easy things because humans, you know, we are lazy and, and, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. We, we are designed to conserve the energy that we've uh, harvested uh, because, you know, we're waiting for for the lean times that will come. And we've engineered our world so that those lean times don't happen anymore. Um, but, you know, the problem of designing the environment is, is a difficult one. Like, should there, instead of stairs, should you have ramps, uh, for example? Uh, should these be actually uh, placed uh, in a kind of a parallel fashion rather than a, a straight vertical fashion? Will people use them more if, if uh, there, there were other designs available? If, if uh, there were lifts present, I guarantee you people would use the lifts. Um, so th- yeah. this is, uh, and, and this is the tendency that we cannot blame people for because we've right. all inherited it. And, it, you know, asking the individual to do something about it is not the place to look. What, what we have to do is to look at the issue of how the environment itself is designed. Is it one that facilitates movement? And generally, no, is the, the sad answer. You know, the pedestrians are thought of as the, are, we're the last path or the last piece yeah. in, in the design chain. But actually, we should have our design centered around what we need to do. Yeah, it's almost seen as impolite as well, isn't it, to to point someone towards the stairs? And what I mean by that is, if you check into a hotel, for example, um, you know, as you get your card or your key, they will say, um, you know, and so you know, it's just over here. Just walk down here, and the lift is there. Lift is, you know, first door on your left, something like that. Uh, nobody really tells you, but also the stairs are just a bit further down through that dark door in that sort of murky passageway. passageway. You know, it's everything's set up. And, and I, I kind of understand that. You know, I think people are trying to be polite. They think, hey, you know, someone's checked into my hotel. Let me point them to the easiest way that it is for them to get up to the third floor. 
Um, but we're seeing around us, aren't we, the consequences of this. And I guess one of the things that really struck me when I was reading your book, which I've got to say is fantastic, and I would highly recommend people Thank read you. it, really. If you're wondering if you should be walking more um, or why you should be walking more, I think that book will certainly convince you. But there was an interesting point where you talked about how many times, and you've touched on it already in this conversation, a child tries and falls on their bum when they're trying to walk. And for me, I'm thinking... Why, on an evolutionary level, a child is pretty stable, aren't they, on, on their all fours? They can crawl around, they're, they're not going to fall and do themselves any damage. Why do we, as human beings, put so much effort into getting off our fours and getting up onto two feet? Yeah, so th- this is kind of like the great, uh, one of the great questions is to try and understand how this evolved. So uh, primates generally uh, adopt a kind of inter- an intermediate form of walking. So they're, they're not pure quadrupeds. They don't walk around on four limbs. Uh, chimps, if they want to go quickly somewhere, they engage in what's called knuckle walking. They lean forward and they power themselves with their limbs, but they also push their knuckles into the ground. Uh, the consequence of the, the way that we interact, uh, or the, sorry, the way we move, is that the range that we can uh, extend over is much greater calorie for calorie than a, a chimpanzee, our nearest living relative, can do. Uh, and our, in terms of the calorific demands of walking, our form of walking is extremely efficient. It's about as efficient as it's uh, as it's possible to be so our food ranging our food finding food foraging capability is much greater simply because we can walk um, and because we can walk we can use weapons uh, we can carry weapons we can kill things we can dismember them and we can do something which no other species can do we can jointly carry uh, the prey that we have killed together on a spear and bring it back and cook it. Um, So walking allows us, so the fact that we've evolved this kind of slightly odd posture brings with it all sorts of advantages that are denied other species. And it's an ecological niche that other species don't occupy, you know. So other other animals that are bipedal, like birds, do not occupy the same ecological niche as we do. Their head is in a very different position to ours and they don't have uh, hands that they can move and uh, interact with the world with. So in many ways, are you saying that our ability to walk is what fundamentally makes us human? Yeah, and not alone that, but our ability to walk is what allowed us to conquer the planet. Uh, Because we are able to walk, let's say, 18, 20 miles a day every day from early in life until late in life. So if you think of that long walk out of Africa we did 120,000 years ago, um, it doesn't take long to cover a couple of thousand miles if you don't have a fixed place of shelter. All you need to do is just walk to the next safe place. Uh, And we can do that. And we can do it in small migratory groups and have done it in small groups. And we know this because of the the trace fossils of human migration that exist in Africa and uh, in other places. Uh, Humans are very, very good at being attuned to others when they're walking. We sense when somebody else senses danger and when we haven't. Uh, if, If people turn their heads to something suddenly, we reflexively turn our head in the same direction, even though we haven't detected anything. We're taking our cue from the other person. Um, We can carry infants and we can also do something which to my, I, I haven't been able to find any other species that can do it. We can carry food and swallow while walking um, because of the peculiar position of our gullet relative to our stomach. Birds, for example, you'll see them, they might walk a little while they're swallowing a fish, but they have to throw their heads back uh, in order to let the food drop directly into the gullet. But we can walk and talk, hence people walking with burgers and... (laughs) 
yeah. chips and all the rest of it. it. It is incredible, Shane, to think about this, that there are all these kind of um, adaptations, these evolutionary adaptations that we've undergone to facilitate these things. You know, why? so why should we be able to walk and eat at the same time or, um, you know, walk and carry our prey back or walk our way out of Africa to to basically go across the whole world in a way that I don't think many other species have done. No, right. the, the mosquito probably and the rat, but uh, <laughs> they followed us uh, and horses and, and cattle have followed us as well. Uh, so they're, they're tracking our uh, humans or they're coming along with humans because we've bred them for our own purposes. Uh, but it, it just so happens that when you, you go back and look at the, 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 the various uh, kind of evolutions of our, our evolutionary pathways of primates as they evolved in Africa, some are more upright than others. Um, and that will have given them at that time certain advantages that uh, it would have been denied others. So f- range is, is a very, very clear one. We can walk very long distances, particularly in the noonday sun, when uh, predators like uh, tigers are lying down asleep um, and we cast a small shadow and we can sweat uh, and we can carry our own water. You know, So we, we mm-hmm. can do a lot of things that other species can't. Yeah, Absolutely. A lot of people make a similar case about running. They say our ability to run is fundamentally what makes us human and actually allows us to uh, do a lot of things that our predators can't do and allows us to you know, track um, our prey for long periods of time. And I guess... You know, have you thought about it in terms of running as well? And is there a fundamental difference yeah, between so walking and running? Or are they almost like... like- Sort of brothers and sisters so, yeah, together. I, I, I don't buy the the story on running uh, as as much as some people might push it because children don't run to hunt prey. Um, that they uh, will only start to do that when they they get into their teenage years when they're strong enough to do it. Now humans have one remarkable ability where running is concerned, and it's called persistence hunting. Uh, we can run uh, uh, herbivores to ground uh, because we can sweat to cool. They can't. They have to stop and gulp air in order to cool down. Uh, but we're not fast runners. We're not like antelopes. We're not like gazelles. We're not like tigers or cheetahs. Uh, so we uh, can walk run at moderate speeds for reasonable periods of time, but we can walk at high speeds for very, very long periods of time. Um, And I don't think we should think of the two as being uh, kind of counterposed to each other. You you will have in any group of humans, some who are exceptionally good at running uh, and they'll be the persistence hunters. You'll have others that will follow them um, and they'll be the uh, persistence walkers. Yeah, Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. And I'm I'm mindful that we're we're recording this literally 24 hours after Elliot Kipchoge broke the two hour record for, well, not not the record, I guess. He's the first human to have run a marathon in under two hours from what we can tell, certainly, um, which is incredible. I I saw a film uh, recently called 3100. I actually interviewed the... Um, the 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 director of the film recently, and you know he he filmed a variety of different running experiences around the world. One of them was uh, a tribe in the um, the Kalahari Desert, and he talks about. Um, well, he doesn't talk about it. He shows us that these guys running is a way of life for them. But but I think what you're trying to say I think is that actually not all of us have to be runners and I guess all of us can be walkers yeah. I don't think that's the key isn't it all of us have the, the ability, ability to walk, to walk. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but remember as well 
uh, your ability to run in certain environments is really restricted. You can't run in a forest very easily. It's dangerous. Um, your risk of injury rises uh, as your speed rises, uh, especially if the forest is very dense. Uh, it's very difficult to run in a rocky uh, in rocky terrain. You're better off walking rather than running because, uh, again, of the, the the risk posed by by uh, the terrain you're on, um, muddy riverbanks, things like this. Again, you have to be very very careful in terms of, of uh, your strategy for getting around. Um, and the data are very clear on this. People who run a lot run the risk of injury um, and the, the rate of injury rises uh, per million steps run. It does not rise per million steps walked. It's approximately flat. Wow. Well, that's incredible, especially when many of us are, I guess, we're trying to be more physically active and many people join the gym or they they join a new exercise class and within a couple of weeks they get injured and then they can no longer engage in the activity that they wanted to do and that leads them to being sedentary. Yeah. So you're making the case, I guess, that walking is probably one of the lowest risks. It's one of the lowest risk, but also highest benefit activities that exist. Yes. And I'm also making the case that our society doesn't facilitate it. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, And that's the problem that we have to counter. Um, uh, you know, uh, on the walk to here today, for example, I had to, or we had to stop multiple times uh, uh, to allow cars to go past. There are, you know, you don't get those long, easy stretches of walking in in a city that uh, we could and should because uh, engineers typically have worried about engineering car flow and regulating pedestrians for the benefit of cars rather than the the other way around. And cars have only been with us a hundred years, but we've been walking yeah. for yeah. tens of millennia. Yeah, so it's madness, isn't it, that we've we've revolved everything around the motor yeah. vehicle. I, I think it's worse in America. I've just come back from uh, 10 days in California and it's incredible. I was staying with a friend in Santa Monica and you know, these guys take Ubers everywhere. And I, I had a meeting to go to and I looked at Google Maps and I thought, that's only one and a half miles away. I think I'm going to walk, you know, I don't need to take an Uber for that. It's a nice day, as, as often is the case in California. What was interesting is I, I had a little look in my in my head. I tried to figure out roughly which way I needed to go. I, I try my best not to use Google Maps too much when I'm walking, if I can help it. Obviously, sometimes I need to. And in America, with, this, with the kind of block system, it's often a lot easier to kind of facilitate in your head and understand where you are going. And I started walking and then I knew I was on the right track, but then I came up to like an intersection that I simply couldn't cross. And I had to almost back up a few streets and go around it. And I've noticed that in a few American cities that it is literally set up around the motor vehicle. And if you're trying to walk places, you know, you cannot walk every single route. There are only specific ways and you can get around. And yes, America's got a huge obesity problem. Yes, there are many, many different factors um, when it comes to obesity and, and you know chronic lifestyle-related illness. But I can't help but thinking something culturally in America is 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 causing a big problem. It's it's set up around the motor vehicle and it's not set up 
it's not set up around the human being who wants to walk on their two feet. Yeah, and you see this when you, you again, you look at the, the kind of what are the walkable cities and you look at the indices of, of what are walkable or what, what makes a city walkable. So if you look at cities like New York, uh, Boston and San Francisco, people walk a hell of a lot in those cities. They're, they're very densely packed cities with lots happening in the cities and there isn't a lot of room, relatively speaking, for cars. There are cars there, obviously. Go to a places like Atlanta, outside of the city centre, there are no footpaths. You cannot walk, um, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, there, in uh, California, you, you look at the contrast between uh, somewhere like San Jose and uh, San Francisco, very similar climate. Um, one is very car bound. The other is limited in the number of cars because the bay is in the way um, and they've got a very good public, well, a reasonably good public transport system. Yeah. Um, so you, you can see even within the cities that are in the US, some are much more walkable than others. And interestingly, the more walkable cities are the ones that are more expensive and people like living in the more, uh, they don't have the same experience of anime and other things that uh, people in car bound cities uh, have. Uh, so the US has a, a particularly uh, major problem in, in allowing people to walk. And again, if you look at the, the index of walkability, um, cities in which people uh, have to drive a lot tend to be fatter cities. Um, that People tend yeah. to have a, a problem. But it's unsurprising. Uh, you, you have to get into your car to go to the shops, to go to work, to do anything. Yeah, you've got a lovely mnemonic in your book that you hope that uh, town planners and city planners start adopting. I wonder if you could share what that is. And then also share, since the book has been out, has anyone been in contact with you um, in, in, you know, with interest of sort of using your expertise to help them redesign their city centres or their town centres? So um, well, I finish up uh, the book uh, on the theme of social walking. And I, I think this is kind of one of the things that's been very much overlooked when you look at the evolutionary literature on how we walk. Uh, our walking is social. We're really good at synchronising our behaviour together we're, when we're walking. Uh, we start to walk at the same pace. Naturally, we look upon it as something aggressive when we're with somebody who persistently walks ahead of you. Uh, um, at too high a speed. Um, and what I argue for in, in, in that chapter is we must have a, a charter for mobility that's based around the needs of humans, around pedestrians in, in our towns and cities. And that needs to be baked into the public policy process at the start. Um, and to do that, what I've, I've suggest is we have a, a very simple way of, of, of uh, remembering this. And the word I use is ease. Um, so our cities should be easy, uh, should be easy for everybody to get around and easy to walk in. Uh, this should be accessible to everybody. And I mean that for not just walkers, but also for people who are mobility impaired, who've got problems with vision. You know, we need to design our footpaths so that they've got the little bubbles for people to step on so that they know they're, that they're at the, the edge of the footpath. Uh, we, we need to, to lower the edges of footpaths so that people in wheelchairs can get around much more easily. Um, uh, our cities and towns should be safe for all walkers. And the Walkers should take primacy uh, where uh, walking, or sorry, where movement is concerned. Yeah. We shouldn't mix cars. Uh, we we should really try and just engineer cars out of things. Uh, and then our cities and towns should be enjoyable. So, which is the the last letter of ease, and it should be enjoyable for all. And the implication there is that we should stop thinking of of streets as thoroughfares. Uh, we should be thinking of our streets as destinations places that people want to hang yeah. out, uh, places that people can enjoy. Um, and 
the reality is, you know, if you want to be strictly utilitarian about it, streets that are thoroughfares are not economically active streets. Streets that are destinations are really economically rich because people hang around and spend their money there. They meet their friends there. Uh, they become almost like outdoor shared living spaces or living rooms that uh, we can all uh, be in together. I think that economic point is super interesting because unfortunately a lot of the things that need to happen in society to make change are when there's an economic driver there you know the moral driver the health driver often doesn't appear to be enough which is incredibly frustrating but you're sort of saying that there is an economic case as well yeah. when we when we do this and I guess there are so many examples these days, even the town in which I grew up uh, and which I now live in um, I remember as a kid the main the main kind of shopping high street, you know, cars would go down it and people would park on it. And, you know, maybe it might even be 20 years ago now, it became pedestrianized and there was a huge, you know, kickoff at the time. People were unhappy with it, but everyone's accepted it. Everyone's happy. It's a really nice, vibrant place to sort of walk around now because there are no cars there. Yeah. So people feel safe. The kids can run. They're not constantly having their parents telling them, stop, stop, don't do this, don't do that, because they can run freely and walk freely. And, is this a pattern that we see that we see there this is everywhere you really, go? Really, resistance, resistance at first, resistance and at then acceptance. So, so Galway, where I'm from, on the west coast of Ireland, uh, it, the, the main street is a street, ironically enough, known as or called Shop Street, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because when it was an old medieval town, this was the first street yeah. that uh, shops were built on, and the resistance there to pedestrianisation was astonishing. But actually, now it's this amazing street that runs from the centre of the city all the way down to the to the river and uh, it's a really vibrant cultural quarter and nobody would go back um, and if you look in London for example uh, where we're doing the, re the recording here when you look at something like TripAdvisor or one of these things to, to find out what tourists rate as the best attractions in London, it's Covent Garden. There are no cars in Covent Garden. Yeah. It's Buckingham Palace. There are no cars outside Buckingham Palace. Yeah. Um, it's the, the, the galleries. It's all of these places that humans can assemble freely together. It's not the gyratory at the Elephant and Castle. Uh, it's certainly <laughs> not the A40 West. Um, yeah. You know, people might drive in that and think, whoa, I'm glad I don't live here. But People do not come to London in order to enjoy the uh, the, the motorway system. Yeah. They come to places that other humans can congregate. And this, you know, again, another theme that comes out of the book is that we underestimate how important sociability and social life is to humans um, and the creation of kind of social spaces that we can freely walk around in uh, is one of the, you know, when architecture does it well, it's one of the great achievements in, that makes a city an attractive place to be. Like the old Italian cities, for example, yeah. Bologna, wonderful place to, to walk around. Uh, Florence, if you, if you look at Piazza della Repubblica, or those kinds of places, yeah. wonderful places for social living. Yeah, and I think back now to European cities I've visited or on, on holiday and there is something, you know, particularly these Italian little town centres, there's so, it's so, you know, there's not much room for cars. That's the there's joy. There's not much room, yeah, right? That's the joy of those cities. Um, there, there is no room for cars and uh, what you have is a kind of a stable and wonderful lifestyle that has been there for hundreds of years, long before the car evolved yeah. and will be there long after we've decided that actually car bound living is a mistake yeah. and Italians love their cars you know yeah. Yeah, but, uh, absolutely. but they haven't tried to squeeze them into uh, these little old towns and yeah. they're lovely for, that, for their absence You mentioned social walking and I find that incredibly interesting this idea that as we're walking 
people around you probably start to synchronize their cadence and their speed and and you know and many other things that allow us to walk in large groups and i'm that i think about you know there's a lot of protests going on at the moment about you know climate and all kinds of things and often it's done with peaceful marches so is there something about a group of humans walking together in a march that is, I mean, what is that doing? Is something going on with our brains? Why do we feel that walking together is a great way of actually demonstrating it and expressing the strength of feeling that we have uh, for a particular issue? Yes, so this is something else that sets us apart from all other other species. Other species herd, uh, but they do it you know, for reasons of protection uh, or they do it for reasons of migration. We do it for something which is in our minds, uh, which is, you know, to protest against legal structures. You know, they're not something you can touch in the world or political structures. You can't touch them, but but they're, it, it's a something that we, we all share together. Um, and uh, humans, uh, when uh, uh, we gather, many of us, not all of us, but many of us f- uh, have this feeling of effervescence, as it's referred to, uh, which is the kind of the joy of the merging of yourself with others who are bound together in in uh, a similar kind of of mission, and uh, the, the, again, as I said, it's a, an absolutely uniquely human uh, propensity. The problem is, though, uh, kind of twofold. On the one hand. Uh, Autocratic states don't want people gathering together in shows of, of force, or sorry, shows of uh, showing their dissent against the the uh, the regime. Um, and the other is the walkers themselves. It's all very well to go out for a protest march against X, whatever X happens to be, but that's not going to change the world uh, unless you do something afterwards. And that afterwards involves engaging with, in a democracy in the political system. It involves voting for members of parliament to do things. It involves writing policy documents. It involves organisation. It involves a whole lot of other things. So sending the signal that you're unhappy is one thing, but okay. uh, taking the action after you've sent the signal is something else entirely. Yeah, for sure. And I get that in terms of actually making change. I just find it fascinating that so many things are done over walks, you know, and, it, and you know, you, you dedicate a whole chapter and you've got to social walking, which is incredibly fascinating. But you're a neuroscientist. And I know from doing some research on you that you have studied a lot of things about stress and depression and its impacts on particular parts of the brain, including the hippocampus. And that's an area that, that can get affected quite powerfully by walking. I wonder if you could expand. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think one of the great discoveries of the of, or rediscoveries of the last kind of couple of decades in neuroscience is the realization that the brain is a muscle or functions like a muscle. Uh, it's plastic. If you work it, uh, it changes dynamically in response to, to what you do to it. If you leave it, 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 it tends to atrophy. So uh, the parts of the brain that are concerned with learning and memory uh, is a part of the brain called the, the, the hippocampal formation. It's also the same part of the brain that's involved in the processing of information about stress. Uh, and it's also very badly affected by depression. And here's, I think, one of the amazing discoveries. Uh, we now know with absolute certainty, as certain as we know anything in science, that lots of aerobic exercise, getting out and moving, walking lots, materially affects the volume of the hippocampal formation. It gets bigger as the result of, of uh, exercise. And the functions it supports get 
better as a result of uh, exercise. And you can demonstrate this in all sorts of ways. We've done studies, for example, with um, uh, sedentary uh, college students and we've made them do forced exercise regimes on bicycles, on, on, on exercise bikes and shown that uh, molecules that are expressed in the brain, uh, which, which float into the blood, uh, including brain-derived neurotrophic factor, go up and memory in these students goes up. But even more dramatically, um, this capacity is retained right throughout life. So it's never too late. So I, I, I'll, I'll just pick on, on one very important study. Art Kramer's group in Chicago have taken uh, a group of uh, about 120 people in their early 70s, divided them into two groups, one who were just left to live their life as uh, randomly into two groups. They live their life as they always live it. And uh, the other group are brought out for a walk three times a week. That's all for about a mile and a half with a physiotherapist in small groups, groups of, of two. And uh, they're followed for a year or so. And what you see is in the walking group, improvements in memory, improvements in attention, an increase in the volume of the hippocampal formation, uh, an increase in the amount of this amazing substance, BDNF, in the blood. And uh, the 72-year-olds start to perform on psychological tests at the same level as 68-year-olds do. So in, in a very important sense, you've reversed the functional aging of the brain. Whereas the other group who just continue their sedentary tele-watching lifestyles, they continue on a pathway of decline. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible. And, and I like the, the point you're making, that it's never too late. That's the important thing. Uh, and I, I like to suggest uh, that uh, you only get old when you stop walking. You don't stop walking because you're old. Yeah. And I guess walking, and I, I'm thinking about um, you know, people in my family now, walking is something... I, I think this is actually part of the problem as well. And one of the reasons why I think you had to write this book is... It's such a simple thing. It's something that many of us don't think about. We just put one foot in front of another and we're walking. So we don't give it maybe the credence that it deserves. And we don't we don't probably recognize its importance yeah, but I think until the, we lose it. What you've said, though, is the key point that we don't think about it. We just put one foot in front of the other. And that's the point, I think, that has gone wrong in how we've engineered our modern world. We've made it easier for the default to be to get into your car. What we should do is at all of the points of the day, whenever you're moving around, we should make it easy for you to just put one foot in front of the other without thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. that's what we need to do. Yeah, it, it's it's mind blowing. And um, as you as you're as you're describing all these benefits, I'm, I'm thinking back to the I, I I went to Nairobi in 2011 for the first time. I'd never been to Africa before. Never been to Kenya. And my wife's uh, father, so my father-in-law has a lot of his family living out there and they are Jains. And it's really interesting that, you know, the environment in Nairobi is certainly not set up for walking. It's a, lot of, it's a busy city yeah. with lots of cars, but this Jain community, they have a center and every evening at sort of dusk time, everyone in the community seems to congregate there. And for about an hour, they've got this track. They all walk together for an hour together, just in... I wouldn't say in meditative silence, but it's a very quiet, it's a very reflective time. And, and because it's done in a community, because there's other people there, I think it attracts people. So they come each day. 
And I guess there's social connection, they're seeing your your friends, your family, but there's something about that daily walking together, uh, which is which is extremely powerful, and I think. You, you, and you see this in Italy. Uh, in Italian towns, they have uh, uh, the wonderful phenomenon of the passeggiata. Uh, at seven or eight o'clock in the evening, in these car-free centres, people come out for a walk around together. It's an amble. They talk to each other. They see each other. Uh, if you go to uh, some of the, the uh, uh, squares in Rome, you'll see it happening. But you particularly see it in, in the smaller towns. Uh, it's it, it happens in Sicily. And it, it's uh, I think, you know, you're, you're hitting on something really important there that this time that we can gather and chat and talk uh, free from the clamour of the day and we can have also this wonderful thing, companionable silence. Yeah. Um, it really gives you a great opportunity just, you know, sort things out in your head. Yeah, and I guess in many ways it's never been more important than in the busy, distraction-filled 21st century in which we now live where, you know, many of us... Uh, you know, anytime we have a bit of downtime, we pick up our phones, we're, we're consuming, we're reacting, we are, um, you know, we're not alone with our own thoughts. And I think there is something powerful about walking. I know you certainly talk about this. I've written about this in the past as well, about creativity and what happens when I was writing my books. And I'm, 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 I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I would guess it was the same. If you're coming across writer's block, what do I do? Put everything down, go outside for a walk. You come back and before you know it, problem so, yeah, solved, you're right? recharged. Uh, yeah. In fact, I, I wrote a lot of this book by making notes on a page at my on pages at my kitchen table, numbering those pages, and then going out and walking with a dictaphone and uh, dictating it. And what wow. what you often find, uh, apart from getting the weird looks uh, <laughs> as you're, you're going along, um, is that you talk uh, far past the notes that you've made, and thoughts come to you that wouldn't have come to you had you been sitting at your keyboard. And then you end up with this big slab of text, which is, has too many pauses in it and yeah. all the rest of it needs to be edited. But uh, um, this is something that the, many of the great writers of the ages uh, have done. Um, you know, f- philosophers like Immanuel Kant, for example, enormously productive. He would go and you could set the clock by him, apparently, in Regensburg. Um, 3 p.m. every day, he went for a two-hour walk and then he came home and he wrote. Uh, Bertrand Russell, um, the uh, the great philosopher, uh, would uh, went for long walking holidays and enjoyed the feeling of of, of uh, not being in pain from thirty mile walks. But for his regular writing, he would get up, uh, make a few points on a page, go for an hour's walk, and then come back and compose. Stephen King, the novelist. Um, and his book on writing describes how uh, he goes for very long country walks before he starts writing every day. It really, really does help. Yeah. Do we know the mechanisms by which we become, you know, more creative and we can solve problems when we go out? We take a break and we go out for a walk. Do we know exactly what is going so on? So I think th- there are probably two or three different things going on here. So I think we have a misperception about how we problem solve. Uh, and we think problem solving is active. It's time on the task. It's banging your head against the problem. And actually, uh, when we look at how the brain uh, operates, we have what's known as a, a kind of a, a default mode, sometimes called the default mode network, where we're actually zooming back out. We're looking at kind of the bigger picture. And to do that, we're not engaged with the environment. And then we have what's called a task positive network, where we're focused on the thing. Um, and 
creative problem solving happens best when you're able to flicker between these two states where you're, you're looking at the forest, then you're looking at the trees and then you come back out. So you're searching for the pattern. And I have the suspicion, um, although I, I, I can't prove this, but I, I, I would hope uh, that we would be able to soon, that one of the things that happens when you're walking is that you're able to engage in kind of an, uh, an active idle mode of thought where you can flicker in on the problem, focus back out from it, hone in on it again and come back in and out. And walking facilitates this kind of rhythmic um, uh, focusing, defocusing on, um, on a problem. And I, I also think there's another thing going on. Um, when we're sitting, as we're doing now, our brain doesn't have to work very hard. Uh, it doesn't have to work to maintain posture. Uh, when we stand up, one of the first things you have to do, or one of the first things you see is our blood pressure changes, our heart rate changes, our our breathing changes. And the brain has the particular job of keeping you stable um, so there's a lot more activity going on. So I, I think what's also happening when you're up and about, uh, more of the brain is active and ideas that would be kind of just below the level of consciousness previously are now just being brought above and into consciousness because the brain is a bit more active. Yeah. And you mentioned at one point in your book that actually when we walk, other senses are heightened. Yeah, yeah. Which, yeah. which I found, you know, it kind of makes sense. I think what, what, a lot of it intuitively makes sense, but only when you say it. Only when you say it. Exactly. You don't think about it. So yeah. what what happens to all these other senses? Yeah. So again, you know, I think we've had this kind of view of how the brain works, which is which is manifestly when you think again when you say it out loud, it's wrong. Uh, we think about the brain as as something that passively takes in information from the outside, does something to it and then we engage in a motor movement. But actually, the world is too complex for us to do that. Uh, and instead, a better way of looking at the brain is that it's, it's kind of information hungry. It, it's uh, predicting things continually that are about to happen and it's searching for information about the world to allow us to predict what we're going to do next. Uh, and it, it's engaged in the generation of, of possibilities. And it does this all the time uh, when we're moving around. And if you, if you imagine, for example, you're a cat, uh, imagine you're a mouse, uh, and I use this example in in, uh, in the book. As a mouse, you don't want to get eaten. As a cat, you want to eat the mouse. Uh, so you're walking around and your job as the mouse is to detect the presence of the cat. Um, and what you find in the mouse's brain when it's moving like that, uh, activity in its visual areas are heightened, activity in its um, areas that are concerned with, with hearing and all of those parts of the brain are, are heightened when it's in movement. They're not when it's not moving. And the same is true of the cat, uh, because when you're moving, that's how you're going to capture your prey. Uh, you, you don't capture your prey passively. If you're a cat, you're, yeah. you're a predator, you hunt. Uh, so it makes sense that uh, and, you know, again, think about humans on, out on the, the African plains uh, 100,000 years ago carrying a, a fairly small spear. Is that yellow thing moving over there an antelope? In which case I can go after it quickly. Or is it a tiger? And should I run away? Yeah. <laughs> or can I run away? You need to make these decisions really, really quickly. They have to be really, really fast. So a, a selection effect in favor of a brain that anticipates uh, what's about to happen makes a lot more sense. I mean, that that is incredibly um, deep on one level, because in, in many ways, what you've just articulated is saying that 
maybe if we're sat down all day or we're certainly not walking, maybe our brain is only in first gear. And maybe to get into second, third, fourth and fifth gear, maybe we need movement, we need walking. So if we're living sedentary lives, if we're sat down in our car to get to work, if we're sat at a desk all day and we sit down to eat our lunch at our desk and we come back and we sit on the sofa in the evening, that for many of us, maybe our brain's have not got out of first gear. No, no. And uh, the weird thing, of course, is that uh, sitting around all day is tiring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then you come home after not having done uh, a day digging ditches, uh, sitting at your yeah. computer, and you're exhausted. And the reason you're exhausted is because uh, our bodies and brains need movement. Uh, in, and that ma- movement generates all sorts of wonderful molecules um, that feed back on our sense of well-being, that that facilitate uh, good things in terms of our musculature, in terms of our heart rate and in terms of what's going on in the brain. So actually, somehow we need to break this. Uh, I I don't have a solution for it except to say that we, right at the outset, need to bake into design principles for work, for buildings, for all the things that we do. For schools? For schools, absolutely. Um, No question about it. The facilitating movement um, and uh, making sure that much more movement happens. The other thing, of course, we we have to do is is, uh, honour sleep. You know, the the two things that uh, will do the best for your mental health and for your physical health is to get lots of walking in, get lots of proper quality sleep. Yeah. I don't deal with that in this book, but there are many excellent books. I've dealt with that in my too. Book, so, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but it's a great point. It's yeah. such a good point. And again, you know, my wife and I this summer, we reflected on a lot of things and our children have moved school recently and it's a bit further away. So the natural tendency would be or would have been to drive there. And we've made a little bit of a vow in the family that we are literally going to be trying our very best every day to walk the kids to school, even though it's probably 25 minutes. I know that that, that is not long. You talk to a lot of people and they'll be like, you know, people all around the world walk way more than that to school every day. But it's guess, I guess it's how used we are to convenience and, and quick, yeah. short car journeys. But we made a big difference. And I think you have shared some research that suggests actually if we walk prior to doing some sort of intellectual task, we perform it better if we have walked just before it. Yeah, and we perform it more creatively, uh, which is the other thing. We generate more ideas. So a very simple way of demonstrating that is, you know, to take a common household object like a a pen, for example. And I ask you to come up with as many uses for that as you can in the next three minutes. And you might come up with seven or eight uses. You might come up with 25 uses. Uh, people vary and reliably vary in in, in uh, this capacity. But it's a very good measure of creativity. Uh, knowledge workers, creative artists, uh, high-performing scientists will typically come up with many more uses for a common object than, than uh, somebody who's not uh, working in those those kind of domains. But here's the rub. Um, For a hundred years or more, uh, psychology has explored creativity in people who come to a lab and sit down and do a creative task. Um, What psychology has not done is asked, what would happen if we got people to move prior to getting them to do a creative task? And what you find is that if you have people do a short period of movement, walk for five or ten minutes prior to them, generating these cre- new creative ideas. They generate on average twice as many uh, after having walked 
uh, compared to those who are seated. And I, I, uh, the studies on this are very beautiful. They're very carefully controlled. There's one where they've uh, had people sit on a treadmill, <laughs> on a chair, and they've had them walk on the self-same treadmill. And again, you find the same thing coming through that walking either on the treadmill or walking around an environment, uh, you will on average generate about twice as many new ideas. Yeah. Now, here's the important thing. It's often suggested that creativity diminishes with age. Um, and that doesn't appear to be entirely true. Uh, but uh, what is certainly correct is that if you get elderly people or people who are older in their 70s to walk prior to uh, a creative idea generation, they will generate twice as many ideas as sedentary 20-year-olds who haven't walked. Wow. So it, I've already said it's never too late in terms of, of changing what happens in inside uh, your head as, as a result of walking. Uh, neither is it too late where creativity is concerned. It's mind-blowing, isn't it? You, we're, we're seeing benefits for our physical health, for our mental health, for our creativity. Um, how accessible is that? You know, walking before you do a task, you know, whether it's walking your kids to school, whether it's before we get in the office, whether it's simply a case of, you know, having a break at lunchtime where you go for a 10 or 15 minute walk. It is, it's not only that it's going to make you feel better, it's going to make you more creative. And so many of us are trying to actually become more creative, solve problems that we have in our lives, relationship problems, all kinds of things. It's always better after a walk. Yeah. So the trick, at least the trick I use uh, is write down the the few bullet points of what it is that you're trying to do. Um, and that organizes your thoughts into a kind of a schema. And then just put it down and go for a walk and come back to it. Yeah, that's the way. Uh, so you kind of almost signpost it to your brain. These are the four or five things that I need to, to worry about. Work on. Yeah. And then you forget about it. Just go for a walk. And, and, uh, and let your deeply, deeply clever brain, brain do the work for you. Yeah. 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 And uh, if, if it hasn't worked as a result of the walk, sleep on it. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, there's John Dos Passos, the novelist, uh, used to say whenever he had trouble with writing, he would let the committee of sleep solve the problem <laughs> for him. Um, and uh, it is clearly the case as well that for difficult problem solving, you know, uh, having a good night's sleep can often, not always, but can often facilitate the, the problem solving. And having had a good day of movement before sleep helps you sleep. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think the, the powerful message for me in, in what you're talking about at the moment is that our brain is always trying to solve these problems for us if we allow it to. Yes. And it's very powerful what you said, that the two most important things we can do for our mental health is sleep well and walk lots. Yes. And they're things that actually really are available to so many of us. I know many people struggle uh, with their sleep and I think that the human being's default state is to be able to sleep. And generally speaking, I would say in, in my uh, many years of clinical experience, I would say that the majority of people who are struggling with their sleep are usually doing something in their lifestyle that they do not realize is affecting their ability to sleep at night. Yeah. It's very, you know, you do get primary sleep disorders, but by and large, I think it's it's rare compared to the people who are who are struggling because you know they're not moving enough or they're not switching off in the evening or their stress levels are too high yeah. whatever it might be but walking and sleeping are two things that are available to us just taking a quick break in today's conversation to give a shout out 
to the sponsors of today's show. Athletic Greens continue their support of my podcast. To be really clear, I absolutely prefer that people get all of their nutrition from foods. But for some of us, this is not always possible. Athletic Greens is one of the most nutrient-dense whole food supplements that I've come across and contains vitamins, minerals, prebiotics, and digestive enzymes. So if you are looking to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. For listeners of this podcast, if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you will be able to access a special offer where you get a free travel pack box containing 20 servings of Athletic Greens, which is worth around £70 with your first order. You can check it out at athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. You mentioned mental health, and I think that will be a perfect sort of place to go in this conversation is how important is walking for our mood, for our happiness, and for our overall mental health. Yeah, so the, there, there are two different ways of looking at this. So uh, let's look at it kind of on the positive side first. Um, if you ask people to rate before they go for a walk how, how they're feeling now uh, on a scale of one to five, they might say, I'm feeling at around about a two. And if you ask them to rate how they'll feel after they've gone for a walk, they'll say, meh, probably about a two. Then you bring them out for a walk for 20 minutes and you ask them to rate how they feel. They'll now say a four. Um, so we persistently underestimate how good a walk will make us feel. Um, and that's true even for people who dread walking, who dislike walking. Um, they uh, underestimate just how much uh, are the positive effect of a walking uh, and kind of raising your your mood uh, at the moment. Now, a, for a, a much more difficult uh, population or, uh, or a, more, a more difficult problem, uh, which is really a blight in, in modern life, major depressive disorder, um, the, the, the lifetime risk for uh, males and females combined is about 10%, uh, which is astonishingly high, way, way, way too high. Um, and a recent remarkable study in Australia uh, following, I think, about 35,000 adults uh, looked at the risk of succumbing to major depressive disorder uh, as a function of the amount of walking that the adults were doing. And for every level of walking above the most sedentary in the population, the risk of fall, or succumbing uh, to depression falls. So the, the lesson there is that you're less likely, if you do not have a have major depressive disorder, you're much less likely to succumb to it if you are walking more. It's a simple prescription that kind of acts to uh, inoculate you against the, the, the likelihood of, of succumbing to depression. Uh, what we don't know is whether or not walking uh, is a good and an uh, effective treatment for people who are already depressed. Um, there are no good studies that I've been able to find in, in the literature where this is concerned. Um, I have a, a sense, though, that uh, when you look at the effect of very long-term walking, now I mean weeks uh, in nature, what you see from the, the kind of deep case studies that have been done, uh, people's um, the, a whole series of inf inflammatory factors in the blood, the interleukins and a bunch of other things, they all fall and fall really <laughs> dramatically. Um, and after walking. After walking substantial periods, you know, so for four or five or six weeks. I mean, I, mean, I think on that point, I think just to really amplify it, we've, we've spoken many times on this podcast before how 
chronic unresolved inflammation is at the heart, is at the root cause of so many of the chronic problems exactly. that we see today, yeah. whether it's uh, many cases of depression, whether it's type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, um, obesity is an, a, is an inflammatory disease on, on so many levels. Yeah. And what you've just said is that prolonged periods of walking can have an anti-inflammatory effect, effect on the body. Yeah, yeah. There's no question about this. Uh, the, the problem is... Uh, Few people have the capacity or, or uh, the means to to undertake a six week walk uh, in the wilderness. Yeah. Uh, and the, the, there's an ethical issue, of course, if you've got somebody who's who's succumbed to major depressive disorder, they need treatment and they need treatment now. Um, organizing a nature walk for them and uh, yeah. doing this over a six week period is is it would be a, a very very difficult thing indeed to do. But um, I think that the kind of the more Causal issue uh, still is there. We we see in those people who do these very long periods of walking, all these inflammatory factors fall in their blood. Uh, and Ed Bulmore and others um, have uh, posited the kind of theory that uh, one of the key drivers of depression is inflammation in the brain. And his yeah. recent book, The Inflamed Brain, actually yeah. argues that this is the case. And and you see, and we've been doing studies on this in humans uh, and others, uh, 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 or sorry, humans who are treated with uh, drugs like interferon alpha for uh, uh, cancer and other things become very, and hepatitis C, they, they become, are often become very uh, acutely depressed as the result of the treatment with inter interferon alpha, which is a, a pro-inflammatory uh, cytokine. Yeah. So there may well be, uh, you know, w at least one subclass of major depressive disorder, which is inflammatory uh, or inflammation related. Yeah, I interviewed Ed, um, I don't know, six, nine months ago or so on this podcast. We had a great conversation. People really responded very warmly to to our chat. And um I think mechanistically, we can now start to put these things together and understand, yes, we want more data. Of course, we always want more and more robust research. But I think mechanistically, there's enough there to, to be suggesting that, you know, well, walking potentially could be used as, yeah. you know, an adjunct at least. Yeah. You have spoken about two hunter-gatherer groups in the book, which I find super fascinating because I always think when we can go back into our evolutionary history, observe how humans have lived, how they've evolved, how we've evolved, how we've thrived in, in a variety of different environments. It helps to put into perspective many of the problems we're having today. I have written about the Hadza tribe, um, but more specifically in relation to their diet and in terms of the amount of fiber they're getting and the impact it's having on their gut microbiome. But you shared some insights on the Hadza tribe and another tribe as well, actually, that I found very surprising. I wonder if you could elaborate yeah, on that. Yeah, so the, the other tribe are the Simani in uh, South America. Um, and the average 80-year-old Simani has uh, the coronary artery health of a 50-year-old American. Uh, because uh, they spend so much time uh, out and about and moving. Um, and uh, what's, what's remarkable is, uh, you know, when you look at the, the kind of diets that they have, they certainly have meat in their diet. There's no question about that. But they have almost no processed food or basically they have zero processed food. They have a very high fiber diet. Um, they forage for nuts and berries uh, and uh, the, the sweeteners they use are typically either crushed fruits or uh, uh, honey um, and uh, their calorie intake is typically lower than uh, the calorie intake of a, of a Westerner. Um, it, it's not that they're burning more energy. In fact, actually, when you look at the, the amount of energy burned by 
uh, a Hadza or a Tsimani. It's it's more or less the same as a, a Westerner. And we have that, that's that's really interesting. That just say that again because I think that will surprise people. Yeah, and I was just going to elaborate on it. So the the amount of energy they burn is approximately the same as a, as a as a Westerner. And the reason for this is that we overestimate the effects physical exercise have on energy burn uh, and our, on our metabolism during the, the course of the day. So here's an easy way to think about it. Uh, the, the, the kind of recommendation for males is that they consume 2,500 calories per day. So let's call that 2,400 for the sake of, of uh, easy, easy maths. maths. Uh, so that's 100 calories uh, in a, per hour for a 24-hour cycle. That 100 calories has to uh, take care of your breathing. Uh, your heart is beating 60, 70 times uh, a minute or whatever it happens to be. Um, your brain burns an astonishing amount of energy. 20% of the, the cardiac output of the heart goes to the brain uh, and the brain needs energy being pushed into it all the time. The liver burns an enormous amount of energy. Um, and the energy that we use for running and all of these other functions turns out to be a very limited amount of the energy that we burn during the course of the day because housekeeping in our body uh, absorbs so much of it. So what happens in in these uh, other groups is they just eat less uh, and the calories that they eat or the, 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 the sources of calories come from foods where the available calories require extra work by the body. So if you're eating calories that are bound up in fiber, uh, your body has to work to extract those calories. Whereas, you know, you get a cheesecake, you get the hit from the cheesecake within yeah. <laughs> a yeah. couple of minutes. Uh, so the highly processed foods that we're consuming really are a, a, a major problem. Um, what we really need to do is, is to try and shift away from the, the, the very highly processed foods uh, in favor of foods that are, are uh, where the calories are a little bit less accessible, where we have to work a little bit harder. Um, and I, I describe it in the book. That ironically, there's a diet that's used in lab animals uh, and its nickname is the Western diet. Uh, <laughs> and the Western diet is amazing. Um, it's a, a, a diet that consists of a, a fat and sugar kind of uh, uh, mixture Combo, come, yeah. uh, and rats go nuts for it. Um, they will eat it until they are bloated. Um, and humans love this stuff as well. We call it ice cream. Uh, we call it uh, cheesecake. Uh, we, we call it chocolate. Uh, um, if you have, we don't eat spoons of sugar. Uh, it'd be quite a disgusting thing to do. Uh, we don't eat spoons of fat. But if you mix fat and sugar together in the right proportions and you emulsify them just right, they become highly palatable sources yeah. of direct energy that we can eat really, really easily. Uh, and this is actually the problem. So a sugar tax, to my mind, you know, might modify behavior a bit. It might take down the, 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 the amount of sugar in, a, in a, a fizzy drink. But actually the issue is, is to do with something much more subtle to do with the, the fat sugar ratios that we're, we're consuming. Yeah, and uh, as I said many times before, that the, the thing that is consistent with many populations around the world who seem to have really good health outcomes when we look at their diets is that they're having minimally processed foods. Yeah. That seems to be more consistent than whether we're looking at the fat content or the carb content or, you know, other any other sort of reductionist type approach we might take. Generally speaking, they're minimally processed. And I guess that really fits in with what you're saying is that there's a bit of effort that we have to use in our bodies to actually extract the energy from them yeah. which we're trying so think, to do. Think about the smoothie. Don't eat the smoothie. 
or drink the smoothie, eat the fruit <laughs> that yeah. goes into the smoothie. It's better for you and your body has to work a bit harder to get the calories out of it. Yeah, for sure. Just going back to energy expenditure in these hunter-gatherer tribes, um, are you saying that actually when we walk or when we run, we're not burning as many calories as we think we might be? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so, so, so this whole idea that, oh, you know, I went to the gym after work, so I can now chill out on the sofa and actually treat myself with, you know, A, B or C. It's even worse than that because... Uh, <laughs> Uh, you've gone to the gym, your body thinks, hmm, I've persistence hunted. I deserve a reward. <laughs> uh, and so you, you've done your hour of running and you've run down the antelope and there's the meat. <laughs> so uh, actually your body is saying to you after exercise, uh, we're going to have a period of inactivity now. So uh, you, you have this phenomenon known as exercise induced inactivity. And during that period of inactivity, especially in the evening, um, we're much more likely to eat and we're also likely to feel hungry because, of course, uh, uh, the hunger hormone uh, ghrelin is uh, uh, increased in our in our blood uh, in the evening before we go. So this is another reason why we should go to bed on time is uh, as we stay up, this hormone is there and it makes us want to eat. Um, but we, we do have this exercise-induced inactivity phenomenon. So to, to expand that even further, in some cases, I need to be careful how I word this, but in some cases, could it be that going for your run after work or going for your intense gym session after work may potentially be counterproductive if it then leads to you um, feeling that you've expended more energy than you had. It leads to you feeling more hungry and eating more than you otherwise would have done. Could, could in some cases... That can happen. And you, yeah. yeah, you have a psychological license effect. Uh, so what you really have to do is look at the total energy expenditure across the day. You know, So if you're engaging in very little activity, you're sitting down all day, you do this big spike of activity, and then you're back again, um, of course you're going to... Uh, eat more. Whereas if you're engaging in high levels of activity during the course of the day, distribute, excuse me, distribute it across the day, that would be better for you because that's what we're designed to do. We're designed to mooch about more or less every hour yeah. <laughs> during the course of the day. That echoes many studies we're seeing now, which are suggesting at least that um, you really can't outdo the benefit. Uh, you really can't outdo the the negatives of sitting down all day simply by going to the gym for yeah, one hour no, after work. No, it doesn't work. It, it, yeah. it just yeah. simply doesn't work and like that. And again, yeah. just to be super clear, I'm not telling people, and I don't think you are either, not to go no, to the gym no. after work. We're, We're not, not saying that. We're saying, look at the total energy expenditure yeah. across your day and the total pattern of activity across your day. Uh, the gym can be a very important part of that. But if you're sitting down all day and then going to the gym for an hour, don't expect it to be a magic cure. Yeah. Shane, do we sometimes think that walking is a little bit too easy? It's a little bit too simple. Like we're looking for those, um, you know, we get more excited when we hear about the latest new gym fad that's come out, you know, the, the, I don't know, the boxer size or the cross trainer cro or the, the cross trainer or whatever. Yeah. And, I, yeah. and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not absolutely, you know, I'm not trying to say that those things don't have value. I'm just saying, have we missed what is sitting right in front of us by looking for more exciting forms of movement and physical activity? Is it is it sitting right there in front of us? And have we, I don't know, is it is it reflective of culture and where we're at that we're always looking for the new gimmick, the new thing that's going to somehow, 
you know, reverse our, our, our biological age and get us fitter and healthier, whereas walking probably does all of the above and more. Yeah, well, humans are novelty seekers. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. And we are status seekers. Of course, you know, people buy cool pieces of gym kit so they can look down on the people who don't have them. Um, but, you know, we, we, we can leverage this in other ways. You know, one of the or some of the best experiences you can ever have of walking are when you're walking with another person. Um, yeah. You know, so it is something that's very easy for us to do. It's in front of us. Um, but, you know, have a walking group, have a text group, uh, have a WhatsApp group or whatever it happens to be. And we can get the benefits of it very easily. And, you know, it's something that I think, you know, it should be engineered invisibly into our lives. It's 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 not, yeah. you know, it should just simply be the default that we have it as something that we don't have to think about. Um, yeah. But it happens naturally all the day or all during the course of the day, every day. Yeah, for sure. I was struck by something I heard you say once. Um, and that was that, We've been trying to get robots to be able to walk for a long period of time, but but we just we just can't, or we find it very very difficult. And I think that really made me think. You know, is walking is putting one foot in front of the other as simple as we think it is, or is it, or is it actually deceptively complex in in such a way that actually we can't train robots to do it? Yeah, it is horribly complex. Uh, so it's easy to put a robot on wheels, and it can get around very very well on wheels. Uh, but to get a robot to to walk with the facility and ease that humans can, that has been a really, really difficult thing uh, for uh, roboticists to engineer. And again, we, we all kind of overlook the long period of training that we engaged in when we made that transition from being crawlers to walkers. It took about a year. Uh, we had to do 15 or 16,000 steps a day across all sorts of terrain. We fell 50, 70 times a day um, and uh, we had to develop range and movement. We had to learn how to uh, get balance. We had to learn how to carry the dolly to mommy when our daddy or whatever it happened to be when we were moving around. We had to learn that certain areas of the kitchen were yeah. dangerous. You know, th there were all those kinds of things that, that happened during that uh, early phase. And robots don't get that training phase, you know. So it, it may well be the case that a, in future years, roboticists will just say, look, we just, we can defeat the problem if we can have robots that learn and that's fine. Uh, or it's just easier to build things that have wheels or tracks. Yeah. Uh, and I suspect, you know, that's the route <laughs> that yeah. they will probably go down because uh, that's they're easy to control in a way that uh, uh, learning to walk isn't. It seems that at its core, what we have here is that walking has got a PR problem. Um, your book clearly in praise of walking is trying to solve that problem and give it more PR. But I guess if if we look at it as a PR problem, Shane, and we think about why how we can make walking more attractive to people, if you were head of a advertising company and you had two minutes to actually, to actually uh, um, you, know, you know talk about why all of us should walk more than we do. What would you say? I, oh, I would say you'll feel better, you'll look better, you'll think better. <laughs> All of those things will happen. Um, but unfortunately, I don't think it's a problem for PR. Uh, I, I really think it's a problem for the invisible system that's around yeah. us. Why are our footpaths so narrow? Why do we give so much space uh, to cars? Uh, why do we make it so difficult for elderly people to cross the road? Because uh, we've engineered the, uh, the, 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 the crossing uh, time to be slower uh, or to be faster than they can they can walk. It's all of those kinds of 
problems. I, yeah. I, I think walking will happen naturally and easily if we facilitate it and it doesn't when we don't. I, 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 I do think we should all be walking more but I, I think we individually run into a collective action problem yeah. which is that we need our society, our urban world to be designed better for us. And this is a common theme that I think keeps coming up in the social commentary around health. It keeps coming up on this podcast. I had Chris Boardman, the Olympic cyclist oh, on yeah. this podcast a little while ago and again, he's very keen to try and raise the profile of cycling and he's again trying to get these cities to make cycling easy, easy. exactly so, that, so yeah. that people you know and the whole helmet issue is a separate issue but chris almost makes a case i think that actually let's make it safe so that people don't feel they have to put on helmets every time they get on a bike let's just make it easy let's make it um not something that's a real pain for people to have to do every time they want to go and cycle to work just make it the easy thing and you know, you're saying a very similar thing with walking. Let's engineer our environment so that the behavior we want is easy. So the behavior we want is the default option. That is, exactly. what, that is what all these healthy societies yeah. around the world do. That's what all the blue zones have. They're not trying to be healthy. The environment is set up in such a way that health is the easy option. Um, but it, it, the problem is a kind of a, a public health one, isn't it? Yeah. You know, public health isn't sexy, but public health has actually delivered the kind of great health gains of uh, over the, the, the past 100 or 200 years. We don't think about sewerage anymore. Uh, 200 years ago, you could not walk the city. We couldn't have walked the city in, in Dublin or whatever because people didn't have uh, public sewer. Or, you know, yeah. they, they had chamber pots and they threw whatever out the window. Um, and there was disease rampant and all of the problems. So we, we've engineered that problem away. Um, and I think the challenge for architects, for town planners and others is to do exactly the same thing. Take the public health issue seriously um, and engineer the way our cities and towns are designed so that people can actually walk easily around in them. Yeah, absolutely. Shane, in terms of your own behaviour, I'm really intrigued. You've written this great book on walking. By writing that book, by going into the research, I think you already knew, but no doubt you you dove a little bit deeper when you were writing the book. Did writing it actually change your behavior in any way? Are you doing anything differently now than before you wrote the book? Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> it's the honest truth. Um, I've always walked and walked lots. Um, uh, I think what's changed for me most in the recent years where walking is concerned is the presence of a pocket health pedometer in my phone. And I, I'm now very obsessive about checking the number of steps that I take every day. And, I, and I'm much more conscious, I think, of how uh, good I feel on days when I've had lots of walking. And when occasionally, as it does happen in life, you have a couple of days where just it's raining too much. There's too many things happening, and I've just haven't managed to get my yeah. fifteen thousand steps in. Um, how bad uh, I feel on well, not bad, but you know, just how slightly silted up I feel on those yeah. days. Well, let's just briefly touch on technology here because I think you brought up a very good point. So you track your daily steps, and um, you know whether we should be tracking our daily steps is something that people seem to have quite um, you know, quite powerful views about. Either way. And you made the case in the book that it's a good thing to track your daily steps. And one of the things I can see from hearing that story in terms of what you do is you're helping to almost tap into your own intuition. You're, you're seeing, hey, when I've done 15,000 steps, actually, I feel better. My mood's better. I'm sleeping better, whatever it might be. And when I don't hit the same amount, actually, I don't feel as good. So I guess 
that's one thing I think a lot about is can we use modern technology in a way to help tap into our own intuition? It sounds like you're doing that. Use it to support uh, how you're functioning. You know, the the reality is if I ask you, how many steps did you walk last Thursday fortnight? You have no no idea. idea. How many steps did you walk yesterday? No idea. No idea. idea. We are not designed to remember either the periods of time that we walk for are the number of steps that we take because our bodies and brains are too busy doing other things. Uh, So we do need to record them and it's easy to do. I cannot see a meaningful argument in the world uh, uh, that says that we shouldn't. And what we know is when we look at the self-report data of what people say they do against what we know they've done because we've got the smartphone data, people under and overestimate really terribly how many walking steps they take every day, how how fast they walk, where they've walked. People are awful at this. Um, And that's fine. Uh, Our brains are not designed to remember this kind of stuff, but we've designed little pocket-held robots to do it for it, so we should use them. I think the flip side is, and I guess blood pressure monitors are a great example of this, I think they work beautifully well for half my patients. The other half, they're actually problematic in the sense that if you're the kind of person who uses it once a week to see how you're getting on and it motivates you to make positive lifestyle choices, I think it's great. Some people, on the other hand, will check it three or four times a day. They'll really stress themselves out every time they see you know, a, a slight increase in the reading. And actually, for many of those patients, it starts to become counterproductive. Yeah. I don't necessarily think walking, um, tracking your walking steps is is the same I don't part. either I think I think you know this is a, a kind of a, a just a passive record of yeah. uh, what you're doing over the course I, of the I day I find it, yeah. in, in, with my patients I've found actually it's more a positive motivating factor actually it's like if they set a goal um, of let's say they want to do 8,000 steps a day and if at the, at, if by dinner time they've only done 6,000 steps Often it, it's a motivator for them to go, hey, you know what? After dinner, just I'm just going to go, go and for get a quick 20-minute walk. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. they want to meet that sort of standard that they've set for themselves. The other thing I wanted to just briefly touch on at the end of this interview about uh, technology is you mentioned all the benefits of going out for long walks um, in terms of what it does for our brain and our minds. Now, I'm conscious when I ask this question that many people are listening to this conversation right now whilst out walking or out running. But is there something to be said for going out and walking without headphones in your ear, without you know losing yourself in music or a podcast? Yeah, so I, I listen to podcasts when I walk. Sometimes I, uh, when I'm I'm walking, what I'll do is I listen to a podcast for the first half, and I stop listening to it for the second half. Um, so I, I I simply don't know. Uh, I, I, yeah. I I I think you know the uh, the best experiences I've ever had of walking have been walking with other people. Um, you know so I think if if listening to the podcast gets you out for an hour that you would otherwise have spent sitting in a chair go for it I think it's great Um, uh, if you're trying to problem solve uh, if you're trying to think through a difficult problem I think having the auditory distraction is a bad idea Um, especially if you want to have a quiet conversation with yourself about something you know you want to think through why did I say that or you know you know you're going to have a difficult problem to deal with tomorrow how do you approach it what are the the ways you're going to uh, approach the person you have to talk to about it I think in in those cases but I think we just need to be a little bit self-conscious about this Um, and we also need to think our ears need to rest from time to time so maybe 
you know, keep the uh, the sound down a bit. Yeah, I love that. If you're trying to solve a problem, maybe, you know what, go out with nothing on. But if you're just going to sit at home and listen to a podcast and you have an hour, why not go out and walk yeah, whilst you're listening? Right? Yeah, so I yeah. think it's beautiful because it's not like demonizing technology. Yeah, no, no. It's just sort of saying, hey, just think about what you're trying to achieve or, or what your current state of mind is and then do the appropriate behavior. Yeah. Shane, I've really, really enjoyed chatting to you. Um, I think you've written a brilliant book. This podcast is called Feel Better, Live More. When people feel better in themselves, I think they get more out of life. I think this conversation in many ways is you're very, very strongly making the case that when we walk more, we live more. Yes, it's the environment. Yes, we'd love it if urban settings and cities and workplaces and schools could be set up in a way that makes it much easier for all of us to walk. Having said that, I wonder if on an individual level, you can provide some tips, some actionable tips that people listening to this podcast can think about applying into their own life immediately to improve the way that they feel. Yeah. So uh, always have a comfortable pair of shoes close. You know, if, if you're wearing high heel shoes to work, keep a pair of runners under the desk uh, so you can go out for a walk at lunchtime. Set your computer, if you're working at a computer, to have the alarm go off every 25 minutes, which I do, and get up and go for a walk around. Uh if you find that you have to drive uh, your car to somewhere, park as far away as you reasonably can and walk that extra distance. If you're taking the train to work, as I do, get out two stops early and walk that last uh, remaining distance. Um, those kinds of things, just very, very simple changes. If you're going out to get lunch at lunchtime, don't go to the closest shop. You know, use Google to help you. Uh, do the restaurants near me or the shops near me and try and find somewhere new that's a little bit further away so that you just get in an extra 1,200 steps here, an extra 800 steps there so that at the end of the day, somehow you've racked up 10 or 12 or 14,000 steps and you haven't thought about it at all. Shane, I love it. You've written a fantastic book. Thank you for putting all the research together in one place. Uh, Keep on doing the incredible work that you are doing and thank you for joining me today. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. That concludes today's episode of the Feel Better Live More podcast. I really hope it has re-emphasized for you just how powerful walking is and I hope inspired you to do a little bit more of it. As always, do think about one thing from today's episode, maybe one of Shane's tips there at the end that you can apply into your own life immediately. One of his tips was to always keep a comfy pair of shoes to hand. Don't forget that Vivo Barefoot Shoes are one of the sponsors of today's show and are giving 20% off at vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more. As always, do let Shane and I know what you thought of today's episode. Shane is mostly active on Twitter at smomara1. That's at smomara1. And I am on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram please do use the hashtag FBLM so that I can easily find your comments. If you want to continue your learning experience now that the podcast is over, you can head to the show notes page for this week's episode, which is drchastie.com forward slash 84. We go find some articles about his book, uh, links and more blogs and articles on walking as well as links to his book. Now, many of you send me messages each week saying thank you for the weekly podcasts and asking me how you can support the show. Well, of course, the best way is simply to keep listening and sharing with your friends and family. But another way you can support the show is to purchase a copy of one of my books. 
Something that comes up a lot these days is that people tell me they want to be healthy, but they don't feel as though they've got the time. And I am passionate that every single one of us not only has the time, but also has the ability. This is what I try and tackle in my upcoming book, Feel Better in Five. I make the case that when we spend just five minutes on our health and do it consistently, it can very quickly add up and have a profound impact on our well-being. Unfortunately, many health plans out there simply don't work in the long term because they rely too much on motivation and willpower. And the science is very clear on this. Motivation and willpower always run out. So I really do tackle this issue head on in Feel Better in 5. I think it is the most practical and accessible book I've written to date. Many of you I know have already pre-ordered the book. It does come out on December the 26th. But if you pre-order your copy right now on Amazon, there is a link to do this in the show notes page. Although not out until Boxing Day, Amazon usually sends them out before Christmas, so you are very likely to have it by then. If you want to pick up one of my earlier books, my first book, The Four Pillar Plan, outlines my overall philosophy on health and is full of practical take-home tips to help give you a blueprint for living well in the 21st century. And my second book, The Stress Solution, helps you to identify all of the various places where stress lives in your life and most importantly gives you some really simple and actionable tools to help manage this so that you can feel happier and calmer. All the links to their books in their various countries can be found on the show notes page, drchatterjee.com forward slash 84. Don't forget that this conversation is available to watch in full on YouTube. So do check out our YouTube channel or let friends and family know who don't listen to audio podcasts about my YouTube channel. Best way to find it is to go to drchatterjee.com forward slash YouTube. And please, if you can, do consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to podcasts on. It really does help to raise the visibility of the podcast, which means we can get this information out to more people. A big thank you to Richard Hughes for editing this week's show and Vedanta Chatterjee for producing. That is it for today. I hope you have a fabulous week. Make sure that you have pressed subscribe and I'll be back in one week's time with my latest conversation. Remember, you are the architects of your own health. Making lifestyle changes always worth it. Because when you feel better, you live more. I'll see you next time.